0: What's up, people? Welcome back. For you new listeners, I created this podcast as a way to really embrace and express who I am on a very fundamental level. I wanted to talk to people who are experts in their field, people who are doing interesting things, as well as business owners all across Detroit. This week I had a very special guest on the show. I had Dr. Kristen Gersey, a PhD in clinical psychology, and she came on the show to talk about this gigantic ripple effect that COVID has had on the mental health of people really everywhere. I think it's safe to say that there's people all around us we're not even aware of who are fighting an internal battle that that doesn't always show on the outside. Dr. Gersey has some powerful messages throughout our talk, but my own message is pretty simple. Just be nice to each other, people. Uh, it's, it's not a hard thing to do and it just makes everybody happier. We should all be grateful for people like Dr. Gersey because she's on that front line of the mental health battle and the work she's doing to help people is invaluable. If you're someone that needs help and someone to talk to. Dr. Gersey spelled G-H-E-R-S-I provides our clinic info in West Bloomfield at the end. So give her a shout if you need it. Well, here we go, friends. I hope you enjoy our conversation like always. And without further ado, here's Dr. Gersey. Okay, guys, welcome back. I'm here with uh, Dr. Gersey. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, I want to know what you do. You're a PhD, very big deal. That's awesome. Thank is that kind of a weird thing having it at the end of your name, or is it a badge of pride?
1: I, I'm definitely something that I've I've worked really hard for, yeah. and but yeah, it is. Um, it's kind of a little intimidating, of course, to kind of introduce myself as a doctor.
0: Sure. Um, what school did you go to?
1: For my undergrad, I went to Michigan State University. Mm -hmm. Then I received a master's degree in forensic psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Wow. And then I went back and received a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Detroit Mercy.
0: What does that even mean? (laughs) When you're a clinical psychologist and you're a Ph.D., I mean, how does that apply to the real world?
1: So basically for what it means for my job is I'm, I'm licensed in the state of Michigan to, um, at like the highest level to give, you know, individual and couples counseling, group therapy. And that's what I do in my private practice.
0: Okay. So what was the moment where you realized this was for you where you're like, this is awesome. This is a career that I want to pursue.
1: So when I originally went to Michigan State University, I went with the thoughts that I wanted to go to medical school. They have a doctor of osteopathy program Mm -hmm. at Michigan State. So when I originally went in, I wanted to pursue kind of the medical route. My sister went to Michigan State with me and she wanted me to take a Psych 101 class um, our freshman year. So when I originally went in and I got to just understand the, the human mind, human behavior, and how interesting that was and how individuals, you know, kind of navigate life problems and circumstances. I just found it to be really fascinating and I knew that's something that I wanted to kind of pivot and do for for my career instead.
0: Do you find the human mind to be something scary when you start looking into it and seeing how we operate and seeing how people think? Do you Not break scary. people down when you talk to them?
1: I find it to be very complex. I find it to be very interesting, and I've always been very curious. Mm-hmm. I asked a lot of questions when I was little. Um, I always wanted kind of clarification and love listening to people, so that was always something that I was really drawn to.
0: Okay. So for young girls or, or mm-hmm. boys that want to be you one day, mm-hmm. uh, what advice would you give them, or what path should they... Uh, take, I suppose? What's required?
1: So it's kind of a long road. So for as far as undergrad, that's four years. And if you wanted to go right into a PhD program, you're looking at at least about six years of school, additional schooling. I had a master's degree outside of my PhD program, which was an additional two years. So for total, um, for the PhD and the master's degree, and then I did a postdoctoral fellowship, it was an additional... I think six, seven, eight, nine. So nine years post um, post bachelor's degree okay so it's a long road and I think I knew that from the beginning that it was going to be kind of a a long route of academics and internships and postdoctoral fellowships and then the subsequent end is kind of taking the licensing exam for you to be licensed in the state of Michigan to practice therapy well props to you that's (laughs) that's no
0: small feat for sure (laughs) so I wanted to have you on because I wanted to get heavy so let's get heavy and let's talk about this bombshell that hit us that is COVID. Mm -hmm. so uh, I I mean, I think about just the untold numbers of people and and teens that really uh, had a hard time with this and and how it manifested when it came to alcoholism and addiction, and, you know, sad to say, things like abuse and, and people just trying to wrap their head around this. And I think it's safe to say that not all of us have, even at this point. But can you, you know, kind of enlighten us? From what you've seen from a a clinical psychology perspective?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Definitely in the beginning, it was kind of when everything happened and the sheltering in place occurred, a lot of the the clients that I worked with kind of wanted to kind of just like shut down as well. So I saw a lot of people that kind of didn't want to continue with therapy because it was such a shock to our systems. So, you know, it's the concern of when difficulties like that arise for people to just kind of like withdraw because Mm -hmm. it's so uncomfortable and people are not necessarily apt or comfortable in kind of communicating that level of distress. And I think for a lot of people and what we saw definitely an exacerbation with in terms of the the substance misuse, the anxiety and the depression for people that had, you know, those predispositions for those anxiety and depression. And then also for people who have For maybe the first time in their lives, start experiencing that. And so, the difficulty about that, I think, for a lot of people was just like the adjustment of it all. You know, you go from having that daily schedule that you've really kind of carved out for yourself, going to work, working, coming back home, and not having that separation of that work life balance, spending time with people, their spouses, their children 24 7 for the first time. And that's a really difficult adjustment. And I think for a lot of people, when we have those kinds of stressful changes in our daily life, what can happen is that they start neglecting themselves. Mm. Those basic fundamentals, the the sleep, the nutrition, the, the self-care relaxation that they would utilize every day, like exercise. All the gyms were closed. So for a lot of people, that's a great outlet and they didn't have that, myself included. So when you don't have those um, abilities to really kind of discharge a lot of your your other anxieties and the way that you kind of process difficulties every day, it kind of gets taken away and you can really start to kind of feel that discomfort and not know where to kind of put it elsewhere. So we go to those methods that kind of are those quick releases, which for some people are, you know, drugs and alcohol. So you see definitely an increase in that.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting. You said work-life balance and, you know, a lot of us complain about going to work, but at the same time, it's, it's fundamental to what we do on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, you know, it affected me certainly. And I, I said this many times on this podcast, but I started drinking myself, you know, I already drink as it is, you know, as a responsible adult. Mm -hmm. But when you're by yourself and you don't have a purpose, you don't have like an agenda or a schedule, you know, it's it's 1030. I've had my coffee and my breakfast. I'm watching CNN. I'm watching the the updates. And then, you know, I'm kind of bored. I'm like, you know, it's 1130. It's close enough to 12. I'm going to have a beer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that was that was cool. Mm -hmm. And then I make dinner later on that day and I have a glass of wine while I'm making dinner. Mm -hmm. And then the next day it turns into two beers in the morning. And Mm -hmm. it was just like My wife said at a certain point, she's like, you've been drinking every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ugh. So I would imagine a lot of people went through
1: that. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that a lot of people, you know, you go for those kind of those quick fixes of what's going to kind of alleviate a little bit of that distress. And it's it's a self-soothing. And for substances or even kind of food, I know a lot of people went to like emotionally eating as well. And those are kind of those two things is that we kind of can associate with as kind of that like res- release valve yeah, of I, our Yeah, I stress. got
0: fat too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still working on melting it off. Yeah. yeah,
1: so, but I mean, for people it it feels good and it's it's very fast acting and I think for a lot of people you know when you're not able to kind of rein it in because all you have is you're within these you know four walls of your home it, it becomes really difficult to kind of get a handle on and you know luckily for some people they're able to have you know those partners or other people to kind of say you know this is what I'm kind of noticing to kind of bring about that awareness but for other people they didn't have that because they were alone
0: sure and i'm in the uh, the medical field in my day job and i know that when it comes to clinical data there's a there's a standard of two years and then the gold standard for any study is really five years and of course those studies can be 20 years or however long right but my question to you is do we have initial raw numbers yet on what we've seen with increase in alcoholism or or gambling or any sort of addiction, fill in that type of addiction blank as as you'd like. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I have Google alerts of, of the, you know, the impact of, of COVID and the pandemic on mental health. And we are absolutely seeing that, um, you know, within the data and research, as well as just kind of in the clinical field for, for individual therapists. I mean, we are all pretty much maxed out. I, I don't even know who to refer when I'm getting all of these inquiries because, you know, therapists are, you know, bursting at the seams of what they can get at in terms of how many clients that they can see a week.
0: Wow. So those people are hitting it hard. I mean, in terms of like trying to get the data, trying to address Mm -hmm. this problem. And I would imagine based on what you're saying, it's coming in in waves. Mm -hmm. I I don't even know how they deal with it. While at the same time, trying to be safe and, you know, all that stuff and seeing patients. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to read you a quote. Um, Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. What do you think about that quote?
1: Can you repeat it again?
0: Yeah, no problem. It's uh, basically the hard times that we deal with, it creates strong men, resilient men, mm-hmm. right? And then strong men at, as a function of, I'm just going to read it again. <laughs> hard times create strong men, strong men create good times those good times create soft men. So what I'm tying this into, are kids these days too coddled? Are they too soft? I mean, we're in the first world where we live in luxury, essentially. I heard an ex-politician just say recently that our worst day here in America is better than anything else for the majority. Mm-hmm. Around, I, the, around the world, I mean. Okay.
1: Yeah, I, I can definitely see it in working with adolescents is I think there are a lot of luxuries that make kind of everyday life pretty easy. Um, but then, what we're also not also educating people on is kind of like how to cope. And I think the pandemic was a perfect example of this. You know, we have all of these luxuries of our everyday, the ease of going places, we have the financial ability to be able to do so. But then, when those get kind of taken away, people are kind of in shock and there's a lot of discomfort in that. And even with younger people or adults as well, we, we don't really allow ourselves to sit with discomfort too much right. because there's always those distraction and avoidance tendencies that we can do in order to kind of combat those negative emotions like anxiety, sadness, anger. So for I feel with that to be able to, and what I think people have learned over the last year is really been able to allow to for themselves to kind of sit with that. Discomfort. Um, use it as kind of a signal of being able to remind themselves that the discomfort is temporary mm-hmm. and to find ways of making it a little uh, bit more tolerable.
0: Well, I, you know, that's a good lesson in life too. You know what I mean? Granted, we're all going through this tough time, you know, it, it, it's a crappy lesson to learn for all of us. But yeah, I mean, life is tough. You know, there's, there's times where you're not going to get that job that you apply for, or, you know, someone bought the car on the lot that you, you dreamed of for so long, you know, maybe dumb examples, but you know, when it comes to coping mechanisms, it completely makes sense why people would drink or turn to drugs as a coping mechanism because they don't necessarily have them.
1: Absolutely. I think to, to be able to learn and hear no, and like accept those hard kind of emotions. I remember the, the first job that I tried to get outside of my postdoctoral fellowship that I thought that I was a very good candidate for. Um, I, I didn't get the job and, you know, it was really difficult because I kind of didn't know where about to go with that. It was a group psychology practice that I thought I could be a really good fit in. But at the end of the day, that was kind of the, the step that I needed to kind of go off on my own and, and, you know, make my own private practice. So it was actually a really great lesson.
0: Sure. With with these hard things that all of us deal with, it's it's not just, uh, you know, young kids and, and young adults, but do you think it ties into this idea of self-care and self-love. It, it, this seems like a new phenomenon to me.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, my, uh- people that I work with all the time, I'm always honing in, in on those self-care and just those basic things like sleep, nutrition, exercise. I am huge on and incorporating in their yeah. everyday life in whatever fashion and finding those ways of just like relaxing and leisure because I don't think adults give themselves permission. We always go through the kind of the logical the logical things that we need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always going to be something that we feel like we have to do, especially as adults. But I also think that is incredibly important to schedule those, you know, self-care things for ourselves too, or else you lead to that that burnout of of not sleeping, of going hard for work all the time. We also have this culture that really romanticizes, you know, work hard, play hard, but we tend to not allow ourselves to even play. So it's, you know, oh I only got four hours of sleep last night. That's really great. And our culture really kind of makes that into a good thing. I
0: would say it's the reverse of that actually. I would say it's more play than work.
1: Really? Okay. Okay. I do.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, physical exercise and exerting yourself because I made a note of that. I, I think that people would be better off if they had physical exertion, you know, if they read history, you know, having discipline to, to get a job and to save money, take chances just to experience that rejection at times um, instead of motivational quotes. In yes. a sense.
1: Yeah. No, the ability to tolerate rejection and no, which I think also, especially in people that are kind of younger, we tend to kind of prioritize always making things, you know, into a positive or that toxic positivity. And I really do think that it's incredibly important to learn how to tolerate that no and that rejection, because I think at the end of the day, that creates that resiliency that we are going to need in order to tolerate tougher times ahead.
0: Yeah, sure. No, that's really interesting. So I, I also think, you know, based on a, a lot of things that you were saying, I think about schizophrenia, right? And I don't know if this is true or not, but what I've been told is that uh, young people typically around their 20s, when they go away to college because of the added responsibility mm-hmm. and the stress, mm-hmm. it, it, it creates that, I hate to say mental snap, but it creates, it, it's, it's, a, it's a catalyst. <laughs> that is that true
1: absolutely I mean and as well as other kind of mood disorders well you know you have that genetic predisposition like schizophrenia has there's a large genetic component and then those that there's the psychosocial pressures that people can have like going away to college like that huge change in environment that can create that exacerbation overall of symptoms so that we see something like schizophrenia in their first um you know experience of that like psychosis
0: okay well you know I've also noticed that anxiety is such a huge topic these days I mean look if you're a human being you have anxiety right but I hear more and more people talking about it as something that's coming more to the forefront of our consciousness mm-hmm. and, and I hear a lot of people talking about it and I I think it's a healthy thing that people are talking about it but at the same time I wonder If this is, you know, kind of this thing where it's like, well, maybe we're talking about it so we can medicate more people. That sounds very conspiratorial. I understand. Mm -hmm. But I also understand that by putting certain conditions in the way we feel in a certain bucket, in a certain category, that then it becomes maybe a disease or a condition that that we can prescribe a medication for Mm -hmm.
1: I feel and I really try to kind of incorporate just kind of the psychoeducation that emotions are signals and no kind of emotion, anxiety, anger, sadness are kind of off limits. It's a signal for something to kind of recognize, OK, like, what is this emotion telling me? I don't like to, you know, psychopathologize it too much mm-hmm. uh, of just looking at it individually as you know what does this mean for you what is what is coming up for you during this time that is making you more apt to anxiety is medication helpful for some people when they feel like it's overall impeding their you know daily life absolutely but i also think that there is great progress over the last, I feel like 10 years of kind of alleviating a little bit of that mental health stigma of going to therapy, of just like talking about uncomfortable emotions in general, whereas I feel like 10, 20 years ago, it was a sign of vulnerability, it was a sign of weakness. And I think that that's definitely been alleviated over the last couple of years for for which that, in my field, I'm incredibly grateful for because it reduces the ability of people feeling ashamed of talking about it, of asking for help because anxiety is a very uh, important emotion that we can feel that you're right, like everybody does.
0: I like that, I like everything you said. Um, you know, we can easily identify what those symptoms are and, and tell people how to cope with them, but what do you think that root cause is? Because that existed even before COVID.
1: The root cause of?
0: The root cause of anxiety. Is it is it our culture? Is it social media? You know, I think at the end of the day, we're still a bunch of monkeys We're, we're, you know, we're cultured and, you know, we're advanced technologically. But I think that, uh, you know, our culture and our society is very tough in in terms of, um, expectations, you know, and, and, uh, what you need to be. And and that gets exacerbated by social media. You Mm -hmm. see people quote unquote, living their best lives. You know what I mean? Driving around in a Ferrari or whatever. Now I understand that's not everybody, Mm -hmm. but you see more of that. So oh, absolutely. does that does that play into that root cause?
1: I definitely think so because, you know, we're creatures of kind of comparisons and especially mm-hmm. when we're able to see that when we're scrolling and seeing everybody, like you said, living their best lives, seeing their highlight reels and you start comparing yourself. Why don't I have this? Why am I feeling so different from what these people are portraying themselves to be? And what I like to try to kind of encourage people to really think about is that this is someone's highlight reel just because we see a picture yes. of what yeah. we're looking at and we feel like it's filtered and it's magical and it's amazing a lot of the times it's not that at all <laughs> yes. so what you see is necessarily not what you get and I think for a lot of people it can definitely play into that anxiety of feeling like they're maybe not enough.
0: Right. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, could you imagine a reel of like all the dumb stuff you do, <laughs> you know, the dumb right? stuff you say, you know what I mean? Like unflattering moments. Um, have you seen this movie, The Social Dilemma?
1: Yes, I have. What do you think about it? I thought it was very powerful. I thought it was very kind of eye opening in terms of the just the the machine that is social media and how kind of dangerous it can be and I think for a lot of people I work a lot with the late teens and people in the 20s and even 30s Mm. of how just a, a huge kind of pull people have for that and what a difference it kind of makes in terms of like who they think about themselves and their comparisons and what they want to be not necessarily who what they truly kind of value personally for themselves, but Mm -hmm. I think they compare themselves in terms of like societal comparisons. So there's that incongruence of what they truly feel like is important for them, but society and our culture is making us feel like something else in. So there's that tug of war, I think, and that also can kind of create a little bit of discontent internally.
0: Discontent, uh, physical addiction, you know, the dopamine drip that you get every time you get a notification. So for based on your experience for a young lady that is coming of age and, you know, she, she's developing a, a Instagram account. I mean, would you encourage that or would you say, "Uh -uh." you know, like you gotta, you gotta hit 13 first because that's what they kind of said in the social dilemma.
1: Yes. I mean, I have a, I have a five-year-old daughter and it's, like I can even see the effect that, you know, social media has on her in terms of, you know, the YouTube and being on her iPad and all that. And it's a huge draw and pull. And I can see how it's that dopamine for her. So to be able to set like kind of some clear restrictions on what she can watch, how much time she can watch it. And I really do try to prioritize, you know, off-screen time for herself, and it's something that I'm definitely going to be mindful of in terms of other social media channels and what I feel like is appropriate for her.
0: Sure, well, it's good parenting too. You know, <laughs> I uh, I had this moment where I was talking with a coworker just you know a couple months ago, and she was giving me an anecdote about uh you know her her uh, niece or something like that, and she was scrolling on her Instagram and she saw photos of her friends like at an event. Uh, And it crushed her because of the FOMO, the fear Mm -hmm. of missing out. Mm -hmm. And you could see how it really has an effect on these young minds.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because we all want to be included. Mm -hmm. And especially when we're when we're younger, when we're going through a teenage, we want to be like everybody else. We want to be accepted. More is more, more followers, more likes. And when we don't get that, we start to label as not good enough or feeling, like you said, discluded. And that can, I think, also bring about that that depression that we're definitely seeing on the rise in terms of teenagers. Sure,
0: sure. In your practice, what do you like to focus on? I mean, is it just all encompassing? Is it is it wherever you're? Your patient, essentially, or, or the person that you're counseling, wants mm-hmm. to take the conversation.
1: So usually, when people come to me, it's usually because they have some sort of like presenting problem, presenting concern. For my practice personally, I see and work a lot with like kind of like adjustment concerns, like okay. going to college, uh, new relationships, relationships ending. I work a lot with women, so fertility, pre prepartum, you know, postpartum, uh, just navigating changes in life, as well as a, Over the last year, I've definitely seen a lot of anxiety and depression as well. So usually what will happen is the first initial intake, I'll kind of talk about kind of uh, what's been going on for them over the last year or so, what kind of difficulties they've been uh, encountering, and kind of what they want therapy to be like for them. And I'll take it very much on an individual basis, an individual need, but the anxiety and depression and kind of adjustment life transition concerns is what I typically see.
0: Sure. How do you keep that barrier between you and and the person that you're you're dealing with i say you know quote unquote dealing with you know it's kind of a crude word but um uh in terms of staying staying positive staying energetic staying passionate because mm-hmm. you, you deal with these problems day in day out and i would imagine it, it has to grind you down a little bit
1: yeah it- some days are definitely more difficult than others. And what I like to try to do is, you know, during my breaks that I have during the day and then as well as on the weekend, I really prioritize like self care for myself. You know, during those breaks where I have in between patients, I try to, you know, listen to music, call a friend. In terms of being present and focused within the session, I think, you know, eye contact is very important. Holding the space for someone in the session is also very important. And taking everyone as kind of individual. Uh, my approach isn't necessarily, you know, all positive all the time. I want to try to be realistic, but also comforting and and nurturing. And I also think just meeting the person where they're at instead of where I think that they should be, sure. I think is also very important as well.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think at the end of the day, we need each other. You know, we need that human interaction. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of the the undercurrent of COVID. Yes, we're adjusting to this scary world where all of a sudden we're all in fear. We're afraid to go outside and breathe the air. But I really think that because we're social creatures, we miss that. Like the worst thing you can do to a prisoner that's a hardened criminal is put them in solitary. And so I think that, you know, I'm projecting my thought (laughs) of, of how I think your job is onto you. But, you know. When you're sitting with somebody and they're telling you their problems, or what they're just trying to work with on it, you know, what they're trying to deal with, you are there and you receive fulfillment as a function of talking to them. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I I feel like it's incredible to allow someone to give themselves that holding space of feeling safe and vulnerable enough to talk about things that they maybe never said aloud before. I find that to be incredibly powerful. And I'm very thankful to be able to do what I do to be able to you know, actively listen to what they're saying. I think for a lot of people, they don't really get that. You know, we navigate life as kind of a very passive, we're text messaging, we're emailing. We really don't get a whole lot of times where we're face-to-face with, you know, sustained eye contact of being able to really watch someone and open themselves up to being able to feel heard. And I feel like that's a very special quality that therapy presents itself.
0: That's interesting. Let's go down that road. So you're talking about sustained eye contact. What kind of trends do you see when it comes to the youth i mean uh kind of a two-part question i guess what what kind of trends are you seeing for one and then two i mean do you find that the social skills and the emotional intelligence is is lacking or diminishing
1: I think for a lot of people, especially teenagers that I work with, we don't necessarily get a lot of that that one-on-one sustained eye contact time because of everything that comes along with technology. You know, we have things like FaceTime, but it's still not the same as being right. in the same presence of a right. room and being able to hold conversations. There's an
0: energy you give off that gets lost in digital world when you're on FaceTime.
1: Absolutely. And then, you know, nonverbal communication that also is huge right. too. So everybody's used to texting. Everybody's used to Snapchat or, you know, Instagram. So I feel like for the teenagers that I tend to see is that we really try to bring it down to kind of that basic level of learning how to how to talk, how to describe and label their emotions. And I think for a lot of people, I mean even adults included, to to really describe what they're feeling and they don't necessarily recognize that it's anxiety or depression or grief. So to be able to really function on working towards that vocabulary and be able to kind of make the connections that what they're feeling is anxiety or depression and I think for a lot of people it's almost a relief to recognize like oh what I'm feeling has a name and it's something that we can work on
0: yeah I man that's that's those are great points um I wonder do you think that we just talk about our feelings too much I mean I, you know I understand that, it shouldn't be like it was in earlier generations where, you know, it wasn't manly to talk about your your feelings. And now it seems like we're almost on the opposite end of that spectrum. There's this movie I really liked with Leonardo DiCaprio called called The Blood Diamond, right? And, and in that movie, he made the comment, he, he, was, he was South American, right? And he's like, you Americans, you love talking about your feelings, <laughs> right? So what do you think? Do you think there's an in-between or do you think it's good to, to talk about you know, everything you're feeling because that way you can kind of, you know, get a better picture of that person?
1: Well, I think it's kind of the the time and the setting of what you're talking about your feelings, I feel like is important. Um, in therapy, we, we definitely want to talk about our feelings, but then there's certain circumstances where we may need to kind of pull back a little bit on that um, to be able to to really kind of think and process how we feel, perhaps, before communicating it to another person and seeing what that also entails, too, I think is also really important.
0: Sure. It kind of plays into the idea of triggers, too. And and I know that's I ah, I don't know, it's it's kind of a loaded, a loaded word to be, quote unquote, triggered. Mm-hmm. But what do you think about that phenomenon? Because I would say just probably in the past four years or so with like the Trump administration, you would hear more and more people being quote unquote triggered, Mm -hmm. right? So people that can't deal with that reality of, of something Mm -hmm. adverse happening Mm -hmm. in their worldview.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's definitely brought up, uh, I think, a lot of those kind of conversations about, you know, the warning signs or the triggers of what can kind of exacerbate kind of an emotional pull for you. Mm -hmm. And, that, that conversation, I think, is really beneficial because everyone's triggers are going to be kind of individual. So to be able to kind of recognize what... People, situations, or other, you know, environmental stressors are going to maybe bring about an increase of, you know, anxious thoughts or sadness or maybe even anger. I think is really important for people to identify within themselves because then they're going to be able to learn how to maybe cope with that.
0: I really like what you just said because it's it it's more of a pure clinical uh, um, context, whereas the word triggered has kind of become hijacked and become politicized. And, you know, I don't know if you've, you know, I'm sure you have heard the, you know, uh, they're, they're woke or they're triggered or, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate because it buries the true meaning of that word and, and the function that it has and therefore the ability to, uh, recognize it and treat it, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. So
0: I don't, I don't know if uh, you ever answer the question on what kind of trends you're seeing with teens. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. I mean, I would imagine both, but w- what are you seeing in your practice?
1: Definitely a lot of anxiety and depression. Okay. Um, also, you know, body image issues, eating right, disorders, right. are also seeing a lot, but I think there's also as the amount of kind of the luxuries that younger generations are having with technologies, I think there's also an immense amount of pressure that younger individuals are also holding in on as well. I mean, getting into college, the grades that they have in high school, I mean, the threshold is, right. is very kind of perfectionistic. And, you know, you start getting prioritized as like grades are really important. Having extracurriculars is important and we're burning these young men and women out prior Prior to them going to college and then you put them in another really stressful situation where they're moving and then the academic stressors are also rising and you just don't kind of know how to cope.
0: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the, 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 the body dysphoria definitely plays into that. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, uh, the pressure to make money is a big deal, or, you know, and uh, I think our society is over-sexualized to be completely honest. Um, I remember, geez, years ago, I mean, we're talking decades here, I'm an old man, but I remember years ago, I was walking through a mall in Ann Arbor and I was walking by a Victoria's Secret with my wife and I remember seeing this big banner on the outside of the store of this model wearing lingerie and that was like a watershed moment for me because i was like oh my god there's, there's kids that are going to see this mm-hmm. and certainly they do I and mean, mm-hmm. you you don't understand the clinical ramifications that it really has
1: mm-hmm. oh absolutely the, the standard of beauty especially in line with like i said social media and instagram but is
0: real quick i'm sorry just interjecting but that always existed yeah
1: Oh yes, absolutely. Now we're—it's just more and more that we are able to see it. We're not just seeing that in you know at the mall in advertisements. We're seeing that as we click through our Facebook or we click through our Instagram as well. So it's—it's more prominent, and we're also able to see you know our friends and family that don't even necessarily look like themselves on these pictures either. So I think that that is also kind of contributing to that body dysmorphia, those eating disorders, and then also those feelings of just like depression of people feeling like they're never really kind of measuring up in terms of societal standards of what kind of beauty is
0: okay so I got two last questions before we get into our two last questions okay Um, one is what aren't we talking about when it comes to clinical psychology
1: I think what we're not talking about is how accepting that anyone seeing a therapist is. I mm. think that there's a misnomer that you need to be in this intense acute crisis situation right. to perceive, or, you know, to pursue mental health and a therapist. I think some people even who are coming into me for the first time are thinking, you know, oh, like are my problems like like problematic enough for me to be here and use this space. Like I know I'm not like really bad, but I'm still not feeling like I can go about my daily life in a way. And I always have to just bring it down. If you want to be here and you feel like it's going to be beneficial for you and you see that your overall daily functioning isn't necessarily at a level that you want it to be that, then absolutely you deserve to be here and use this space. So I think that that's also really important to recognize. And I think what we're also seeing, Seen and what I also think is important to recognize is that, like, your feelings are valid and your emotional experiences are important. And to be able to talk about something in a non judgmental space for you to talk about maybe for the first time every week is, is super powerful. And I think for a lot of people, they feel that relief of being able to do so.
0: Yeah, I see why you're a PhD. <laughs> That was that was a great answer. And I agree with everything you said. Um if you had a one minute broadcast to the entire world, um, I guess you kind of, you know, addressed all that. <laughs> I mean, you know what maybe <laughs> you should just cut that question out. But I mean, in terms of like condensing that down, you know, to tell people like it's gonna be okay, like would would you have a message there that that, you know, is it? hey, uh, it's okay to to see a therapist, you know what I mean, if you don't have an acute problem?
1: Absolutely, it's okay to not be okay. And to also let people know that it's normal to go through things like this in life where we're feeling like we're in maybe a little bit of a funk. Mm. And to also I feel is important for people to recognize that no feeling is final. Um, your anxiety is not going to be at that peak level um, forever Um, to be able to recognize um, ways to kind of ride out those periods of distress for things like going to a therapist and therapy isn't a forever thing for some people for some people they want to go in for a couple of sessions to talk about through certain things and then they're done for some people they like to take breaks in between and for some people they will go for years and they find it to be something beneficial that they want to just kind of incorporate in their their, sure. in their weekly life and weekly schedules so it can very much be tailored to what you want it to be and what your goals are at
0: I see that as healthy too having a regular therapist mm-hmm. because you know you could use them as a sounding board mm-hmm. and look I mean we have a buildup of junk sometimes you know and and you know that happens over a week over week basis so mm-hmm. I think to have like that pressure release valve of seeing a therapist is nothing but beneficial mm-hmm. um, where can we find you
1: so I am in Bloomfield Hills. I have uh, my practice in Bloomfield Hills, but I also do telehealth services okay. on a HIPAA compliant format if people are more comfortable with having you know, telehealth sessions during this time as well.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, do you have like an Instagram handle if yeah, people want to you? My Instagram
1: is at Dr. Kristen Gersey, and the, the, my website is the same, dot com.
0: Cool. Okay. So let's get into our final two questions. So, uh, I like to prep all my guests. They know the questions coming. I, I tell them because I want them to marinate on it a little bit, but when it comes to Detroit, we're all part of this thing and, uh, you know, we're, we're all in it together. So when it comes to your experience with Detroit, what does Detroit mean to you?
1: Oh, I think it means, you know, community, culture, evolution, um, I love Detroit. I'm a huge Detroit fan. My dad has lived here for almost 20 years. I lived down here for about four years. Um, it's been amazing to see just the progression of the amount of people that are coming downtown on a regular basis. I love just pursuing different neighborhoods. I feel like people are just so open to welcoming you know people from the suburbs down downtown here and I just I absolutely adore it
0: yeah awesome Uh, when it comes to music uh, music and I'm sure you can appreciate this being in the field that you're in but uh, I think music is kind of an intangible thing that we don't realize connects us all and it's Mm -hmm. a universal language that we could be at a concert with people of different stripes and and all feel together at the same time so what music are you listening to now what are some of your favorites uh, either artists or genres Mm -hmm. or listen to in the car
1: yeah I have a pretty eclectic taste in music um anything from like rap hip-hop r&b okay and uh jp Sachs, okay like julia michaels ed sharon I'm really into I like to listen to music in between my sessions I find that to be really grounding and relaxing for me
0: do you listen to music when you work out
1: oh absolutely cool. love music
0: yeah I wear those airpods a lot and I'm worried it's going to have like an adverse health effect because <laughs> I wear them too long you know But um, thanks a lot for coming in. This was really an insightful conversation and uh, I hope we get to do it again.
1: Absolutely, I would love to. Thanks, Doc. Thank you.
0: Bye, everyone.